We've been speaking over these holidays about the condition of the world in which we live, the condition of our own hearts, the condition of our own lives. And as I've been telling you since Rosh Hashanah and all through this Yom Kippur holiday, we have a giant of someone who's addressing exactly these issues in not only our world, but in our community. Someone who is living what we talk about so often, about needing to find in our hearts a place of compassion, a place of hope, and to share that with others so that we can impact others' lives and impact their destinies, the destiny of this human family, and therefore the planet. We are so grateful that Father Gregory Boyle has taken time out of his life to join us at this holiest day of our year. He's the founder and executive director of Homeboy Industries, uh, which has become a national model for gang intervention and rehabilitation. In 1988, when Father Boyle was pastor of Dolores Mission in Boyle Heights, he started a program called Jobs for a Future in response to the escalation of gang-related problems. Following the Los Angeles riots of 1992, Father Boyle expanded jobs for a future by launching Homeboy Bakery, where once rival gang members worked side by side and got training and work experience. The bakery's success led to Homeboy Silkscreen, Homeboy Homegirl Merchandise, and Homegirl Cafe. They all operate under the banner of Homeboy Industries in downtown L.A. Tattoos on the Heart... Father Boyle's poignant book about his work with gang members was named one of the best books of 2010 by Publishers Weekly and received the Penn Center USA Creative Nonfiction Award as well. Father Boyle has been recognized by the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations. He participated in President Clinton's Summit on Children and at the invitation of First Lady Laura Bush spoke at the White House Conference on Youth. Two years ago, the Obama White House named him a champion of change. Father Boyle is also the recipient of the California Peace Prize and the subject of the acclaimed documentary, G-Dog. Because that's what he's called. He's called G. And uh, if you read his book, you understand the amazing humanity of the man who is going to speak to us in just a few minutes. And he comes to a lot of that by, of course, seeing the humanity in those around him those that we so often want to write off, those who we so often want to say are so different from us that there's nothing we could possibly have in common, and their cause is certainly not my utmost concern. His book and his life and his service come this Day of Atonement as a teaching for us that we need to get with it. There is so much more we can do if we see each other as human beings, if we reach from ourselves to another person, in his words, we can hand people back their very selves when we regard them and treat them as a holy self, a sacred image of the divine. So I'd like to read to you a quote from his book that feels fitting for me at this high holiday season, a book I'm hoping he's going to sign. God's unwieldy love, which cannot be contained by our words, wants to accept all that we are and sees our humanity as the privileged place to encounter this magnanimous love. 
no part of our hardwiring or our messy selves is to be disparaged. Where we stand in all our mistakes and imperfection is holy ground. And when the vastness of God meets the restriction of our own humanity, words can't hold it. The best we can do is find the moments that rhyme with this expansive heart of God. I give you a heart reflective of the divine itself. Father Gregory Boyle. Thank you very much. It's indeed a privilege and an honor to be with you on this holy day. It's the honor of my life to, uh, for 30 years, with gang members and um, people like Hector, a kid, a 16-year-old kid who had just returned uh, back to school for a while after a long absence, and a gang member who stepped aside from that life and was now working for us. And he came into my office, and, and he wanted to try his hand at a small talk. And he said, uh, you know, I ran into a man who attended one of your talks. I said, really, you did? And he said, yeah. He thought your talk was rather monotonous. <laughs> I said, wow, um, he did? He said that? And Hector said, well, no, actually, that didn't happen, but I need practice using bigger words. <laughs> so I asked if maybe he could practice on somebody else. <laughs> You know, we're called to reflect the kind of God we have. Be holy as I am holy, God says. And so we want to imitate this God who loves us without measure and without regret. And we want to be faithful to the original covenant that asks us to have a special care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger. Because God thinks these are folks who know what it's like to have been cut off. Consequently, because they've suffered this particular pain, God thinks they are trustworthy to guide the rest of us to kinship, which is God's dream come true. And so we feel ourselves drawn, all of us, to the margins. Because if you stand at the margins, if you look under your feet... The margins are getting erased because you chose to stand there. And you stand with the widow and the orphan and the stranger, with the poor and the powerless. You stand with those whose dignity has been denied and those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And then you get a privileged moment to be able to stand with the easily despised and the readily left out, with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop and with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. You stand out there and you hope to create a community of kinship such that God might recognize it. And you brace yourselves because people will accuse you of wasting your time for standing at the margins. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, In this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. And so you go to the margins because you want to make those voices heard. But above all, you want to be in the world who God is, compassionate, compassionate and loving and kind and merciful. 
and our teshuva, our reconciliation, our returning is is returning to the truth of who we are, which is the image of God. I, my spiritual director told me recently. He says, "You know, we need a better God than the one we have." <laughs> and I know what he means because sometimes our God can grow puny if we're not careful, or we'll get stuck in the third grade or something. When we're invited to an expansive, spacious God. The homies I I work with uh, are are kind of experts at uh, mangling the English language, and and it's kind of charming and always uh, um, illuminating. They're kind of out yogi, yogi bera, you know. And uh, like I had a homegirl named Lisa who came in. uh, She's a trainee. We have... uh, We've had thousands and thousands of trainees, enemy rival gang members go through our place. We have about 500 at any given time working there. And Lisa came at the end of the day, and her man had come to pick her up. She wanted to introduce him to me, and she said, This is my sufficient other. (laughs) And I said, Well, no doubt. uh, yeah, we have an $18 million annual operation, so it's harder than I can carry. So we have a CEO recently who's taken over, and it's nice, so I don't have to worry about cash flow and stuff and the running of the place. And a homie is in my office, and he says, damn, gee, my lady, she's in a bad mood today. And I say, why? Well, you know, she's beginning her administration period. <laughs> And I say, well, you know, I just finished mine, so uh, I kind of know what she's talking about. But I was uh, presiding as a priest at uh, Juvenile Hall, San Fernando Juvenile Hall, and we had our mass, and it was a, a big gym with 500 gang members in. And I was, uh, you know, listening to uh, the word being proclaimed, and and I closed my eyes so all the homies would come up and they would read the, the readings, the scripture passages, and I'd listen to it. And, and a guy, uh, and I had the sheet on my, on my lap, and I, it has English and in Spanish. And, and so uh, this homie got up with a reading from the psalm with a kind of overabundance of confidence. And he says, the Lord is exhausted. <laughs> I go, what the heck? And I look at the sheet. And it said, the Lord is exalted. And I thought, wow, that's way better. (laughs) A God who exhausts himself in love and mercy. Too busy loving us. To be disappointed. And so is hopeful that we will somehow stand with the widow, orphan, and stranger so that we can expand the circle of compassion so that nobody is standing outside of it. All of us are called to be what Alice Miller, the late great child psychologist, called enlightened witnesses, people who through your kindness and tenderness and focused, attentive love, return people to themselves. At Homeboy Industries, uh, we, we we're allergic to holding the bar up and asking folks to measure up. We just show up and hold the mirror up and tell people the truth, knowing that their truth is my truth and my truth is a gang member's truth and it's all the same truth and here's the truth. You are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And then you watch folks on the margins as they inhabit that truth 
as they become that truth, and no bullet can pierce it. No four prison walls can keep it out, and death can't touch it because it's huge. Early next week, I'll bury my 216th young person killed because of gang violence, a young man named Russell. And before he left us, killed last Friday, he knew that truth, and he inhabited that truth, and death has no power over that. Well, part of the task at Homeboy is to reach in and to dismantle the messages of shame and disgrace that get in the way that keep people from seeing their truth. The principal suffering of the poor throughout history is, in fact, shame and disgrace. I was, uh, you know, for uh, six years I was pastor at Dolores Mission, but I've lived in that parish for 30 years, so... uh, I say do services at uh, probation camps, and then I, I race home every Saturday to, to do, um, you know, I know everybody there, so people ask me to do things. So I'll have baptisms at 1, and a quinceanera at 2, which is when a girl turns 15, a wedding at 3, and exorcism at 4. <laughs> Just checking to see if you're still listening to me. I've never done one of those, but... Um, so I got back from doing these masses in these detention facilities, and it was 12.30. I thought, well, I'll go to my office, and I'll, I'll go through the mail. And I get to my office. I'm all alone, and it's nice. You know, you have a little moment, and I'm opening the mail. When this woman walks in, her name is Lisa. And uh, this is the first time she's ever stepped foot in my office. And she's kind of well-known out on the streets. She's about 35 a former gang member, heroin addict, prostitute. Uh, the homies would call her a gritona. She's always screaming, screaming at the bar. The guy who owns the bar next door would toss her out. Screaming to pay phones. Just let me stay tonight. Pleading with family members and friends. And this is the first time she's ever stepped foot in my office. And, and now it's 20 minutes to 1 in my 1 o'clock baptism. She comes in and she plunks herself down. She launches right in. I need help. Ooh, I've been to like 50 rehabs. I'm known all over, nationwide. Went to Catholic schools all my life, she says. Went to elementary school, parochial school, Catholic school. I even graduated from Sacred Heart High School in Lincoln Heights. And then she gets quiet and she says... In fact, first time I ever used heroin was right after I graduated from high school. And I've been trying to stop since the moment I began. And I watched as she leaned her head against the wall behind her and her eyes became like two ponds, water rising to meet its edges, spilling over. And she cried and she cried until finally she leveled her gaze at me and she said with great deliberation, I am a disgrace. And suddenly her shame met mine. Because when I had seen her step into my office that afternoon, 
I had mistaken her for an interruption. We're meant to turn and return. That's what our repentance is. It's about moving beyond the mind we have. It's about somehow finding ourselves in exquisite mutuality with each other. Above all, so that somehow we can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry, rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. The Acts of the Apostles says, And awe came upon everyone. That that is the measure of our health as a community, our ability to stand in awe. And that's what we return to. Some years ago, I was invited to speak to 600 social workers in Richmond, Virginia. And I had said yes to it, and I figured it was a maybe a keynote. Maybe I open the thing or speak at lunch or close the thing. And, and then uh, closer to the date, I, I pulled out the letter to kind of read the not-so-fine print and it was a, a gang in-service from 9 to 5. But I was to be the only speaker at this event for the whole day. So I quickly called two homies in, trainees, Andre and Jose, and I sat them down and I said, Look, you're flying with me to Richmond, Virginia. I'd like you to get up and tell your stories. Take your time. Because <laughs> we got a long-ass day to fill. I'd never heard their stories, and Jose gets up, and he's 25 years old, and um, gang member, uh, been to prison, tattooed felon, was uh, towards the end of his 18-month training period with us, and and he had found himself uh, as a very valued member of our substance abuse team, a man solid in his own recovery. Uh, but he, along with being in prison for a time, he was also had a long stretch as a homeless man and an even longer stretch as a heroin addict. So he gets up and he tells his story and he says, I guess I, you could say that my mom and me, we didn't get along so good. I think I was six when my mom looked at me and she said, why don't you just kill yourself? You're such a burden to me. Well, 600 social workers audibly gasped. And he says, it sounds way worser in Spanish. <laughs> and we got whiplash going from gasp to laugh. He said, I think I was nine when my mom drove me down to the deepest part of Baja California and she walked up to an orphanage and she knocked on the door and she said, I found this kid. And she left me there for 90 days until my grandmother could get out of her where she had dumped me. And my grandmother came and rescued me. My mom beat me every single day of my elementary school years with things you could imagine and a lot of things you couldn't. Every day, my back was bloodied and scarred. In fact, I had to wear three t-shirts to school every day. First t-shirt, 
because the blood would seep through. The second t-shirt, you could still see it. Finally, the third t-shirt, you couldn't see any blood. Kids at school, they make fun of me. Hey, fool, it's 100 degrees. Why are you wearing three t-shirts? And then he stopped speaking. So overwhelmed with emotion. And he seemed to be staring at a piece of his story that only he could see. And when he could regain his speech, he said through his tears, I wore three t-shirts well into my adult years because I was ashamed of my wounds. I didn't want anybody to see them. But now I welcome my wounds. I run my fingers over my scars. My wounds are my friends. After all, how can I help heal the wounded if I don't welcome my own wounds? And awe came upon everyone. The measure of our compassion lies not in our kinship or in our service of those on the margins, but only in our willingness to be connected to them in kinship, in exquisite mutuality, where there is no us and them, just us, which is why God invites us to the margins to stand with the widow and the orphan and the stranger so that God's dream can come true, our own oneness with each other. Homeboy Industries has been around for 28 years, and 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors, and gang members trying to reimagine their lives and plan their futures rather than their funerals. And so we have seven businesses, a bakery and a silk screen, restaurants all over the place at LAX Airport, City Hall. The only place you can get food is at Homeboy Diner. And Homegirl Cafe, where women with records, young ladies from rival gangs, waitresses with attitude will gladly take your order. It's a who's who. If you go there, you'll run into celebs and elected officials all the time. Chief of police eats there all the time. The mayor, um, Jim Carrey, um, the actor, came. he comes many times there. Once with only two hours' notice, we had a, uh, uh, the Secret Service called saying that uh, Vice President Joe Biden wanted to have lunch at Homegirl Cafe. So entourage and motorcade and selfies. And I wasn't there. I was making my annual silent retreat. And uh, But when I got back to the office, a homie named Louie was giving me the uh, debrief. He said, while you were gone, we were visited by the vice president of the United States, Mick Romney. <laughs> so we're thinking of maybe adding current affairs to our curriculum. 
But most famously, uh, Diane Keaton showed up for lunch. She of Oscar fame and movie star, Godfather movies, Annie Hall. And she was eating with a regular, a guy who's there once a week. And her waitress was Glenda, and Glenda's a big girl. Been there, done that, tattooed, felon, parolee. She doesn't know who Diane Keaton is, and, and so she's taking her order, and Diane Keaton says, well, what do you recommend? And Glenda rattles off the three dishes she particularly likes, and and then Diane Keaton says, well, I'll have that second one. That one sounds good. And then for some reason, something dawns on Glenda, and she looks at Diane Keaton. She says, wait a minute. I feel like I know you. You know, like maybe we've met. And Diane Keaton decides to deflect it humbly. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I suppose I have one of those faces that people think they've seen before. And, and then Glenda goes, no, now I know we were locked up together. <laughs> Honest to God, that just took my breath away. And I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton sightings now that I think of it. But suddenly, kinship so quickly. Oscar-winning actress. Attitudinal waitress. Exactly what God had in mind. We stand with the widow and the orphan and the stranger because they're the folks who know what it's like to have been cut off. And because they've suffered that, God thinks they're trustworthy to get us to this place where we are in exquisite mutuality with each other, connected, finally, God's dream come true for us. Let me end with one more story. Uh, it occurs to universities uh, to force their students to read my book against their will. And I'm not, I'm not complaining. But, but my alma mater, Gonzaga University in Spokane, uh, forced their freshmen to read it and before they entered their freshman year. So they invited me to speak. And, and they said, please bring two homies with you. And so I, I, uh, I picked two homies, uh, Bobby, African-American gang member who worked in the bakery, and uh, Mario, a, a, a homie who worked in our merchandise store at our headquarters in Chinatown. And I always pick homies the same way. I always pick enemies, both enemies, rival gang members, just to force them to stay in, in a, in a, share a hotel room together just to mess with them. <laughs> And I always pick homies who have never flown before just for the thrill, you know, of uh, seeing gang members panicked in the sky. <laughs> so I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times with men and women. And, and, uh, and there was this kid, Mario, I'd never taken anybody more terrified of flying. I mean, he was hyperventilating. <laughs> and we hadn't even gotten on the plane yet. And so we were flying out of Burbank Airport, and you've been there, and it's small and big bay windows and Southwest Airlines. But they don't have that hermetically sealed chute to get on the plane. You have to walk out on the tarmac. And then they're big planes, so they're, but they, the feature at Burbank is you can climb up the stairs to go to the front of the plane or climb up the stairs to go to the back of the plane. And so I'm sitting there with Mario, and he's, uh, and I go, it, and, you know, I'm thinking he may die before we actually climb up those stairs. And so the plane arrives, it's early morning, and, and everybody's deplaning. And I turn to Mario, you know, um, 
uh, that this is our plane and he's just having a total panic attack and and so then I see two of our flight attendants, females, and they each have really large cups of Starbucks coffee, and they're schlepping up the stairs, you know, the front stairs. And, uh, and Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? And I said, as soon as they sober up the pilots, um, <laughs> there, there they go now. I know, I probably shouldn't have said this. Uh, But I should tell you that Mario, of anybody who has ever worked at Homeboy Industries, is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there, which, trust me, is saying a lot, 30 years of gang members. All sleeved out, tattoos, neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, cheeks, forehead, cheeks, chin, covered. And I had never been in public with him before, and so he... uh, I'm walking through the Burbank airport, and people are like this, you know, and mothers are clutching their kids a little more closely. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go tomorrow to Homeboy Industries and ask anybody who works there, who's the kindest, most gentle soul here, they won't say me. They'll say Mario. So kind, so tender, so gentle. In fact, as he's on the plane, as terrified as he was, the flight attendant would hand him peanuts, and, and, and he wouldn't just take them, and he wouldn't just thank her. He held her hand, and he looked her in the eyes, and he said, thank you so much. So sweet and tender. So we get to Gonzaga, and this happens a lot, you know, where you have the big talk Tuesday night with 2,000 people. But they don't tell you about the 94 other talks that they have scheduled, you know, like this class, this class, this lunch, this meeting, this class. So I tell Mario and Bobby, I'm not going to speak in any of those events. I'm going to sit in the back of the classroom. You get up and tell your stories. And so they're terrified, but they do a good job. Stories of torture and terror and violence and abandonment and abuse. And honest to God, if they're... Stories had been flames. You'd have to keep your distance. Otherwise, you'd get scorched. So the nighttime venue comes, and I tell the two of them, I said, I want you to get up and speak for five minutes, do a little snapshot, so that I'd include you after my talk in the question and answer. And they were terrified, but they did a good job. So I finish my 45 minutes. I bring them up behind the podium on either side of me. Yeah, questions. And a woman, yes, ma'am. And she stands up and she goes, yeah, I got a question. It's for Mario. First question out the gate is for Mario. And he's a tall drink of water, you know, and he comes up and clutches the microphone. Yes. She goes, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years. What wisdom... Do you impart to them? You know, what advice do you give them? And Mario clutches the microphone, and he's just, I can tell that emotion is starting to rise, and he's getting a damn hernia trying to come up with the answer to this thing, and, and he just doesn't know, and he's trembling until finally he blurts out, I just... As soon as he says those two words, he retreats back into his closed-eyed retreat, and he's trembling more. And I can feel the emotion overwhelming him, but he wants to get this sentence out. And through his tears, he says, 
I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence. Until the woman who asked the question, she stands, and now it's her turn to cry. And she looks at Mario and she says, Why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are gentle. You are kind. You are wise. You are loving. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And 2,000 total perfect strangers stand and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand so overwhelmed that this room full of strangers returned him to himself. And in turn, they were returned to themselves. A returning, a repentance, an atonement. And suddenly kinship so quickly And this is a praise God has some interest in. And so we stand with the widow, orphan, and the stranger because they're trustworthy guides. And we stand at the margins and pretty soon we cease to care whether anyone accuses us of wasting our time. For in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. And so we make those voices heard. Thank you very much.